sermon series through the book of John, the, the purpose of the book of John is so that people will believe in the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. And we called this sermon series just that simple because although there is so much rich fullness and theology behind our salvation in the end, God does not want to make it complicated. He wants us to see his son and turn to him and live. So before we go to God's word, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we approach your word this morning, we ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would open our eyes to see spiritually from your word. We know that every passage has an intended meaning from you, and we want to see that. And we also want to take what you have revealed to us and apply it so that we are conformed more and more into the image of Christ and thereby glorify you. So, Father, this is our prayer this morning. We pray it in faith and we look expectantly to your Holy Spirit revealing the truth of God from God's word. In Jesus' name, amen. Many of the things that we have today and the things that we enjoy today are here because they've been recognized as a better idea. They've been accepted, they've become commonplace because somewhere along the, lay, along the way they've been introduced and people have universally recognized this is a better idea than what we had before. For example, for most of world history, the vast majority of people, for the, for the vast majority of time, did not have indoor plumbing. They did not have it. They, they had wells. They had buckets. Hot water, cold water, showers, toilets, drains. They, they didn't have that. But somewhere along the way, someone had an idea, and they implemented it, and they, they tried it out, and people recognized, yes, this is better than outhouses. Let's, let's go with a better idea. Let's stick with indoor plumbing. When electricity was discovered, and later Thomas Edison invented the first practical, commercially available incandescent light bulb, people recognized that as a better idea. This being able to turn a light on and off at a switch whenever we want is better than a candle that can, that can go out or be blown out. It's better than lamps that burn fuel. Let's go with a better idea. Let's stick with the light bulb. Cars, also, better idea. Cars, unlike horses, can carry more than one person or two people at a time. Cars do not get tired. Cars don't have to sleep or be fed. Cars don't get startled and throw their rider when they encounter a snake along the, along the road or in the traces. So yes, cars are a better idea than horses. Let's go with the better idea. In John chapter 11, Mary and Martha have an idea. Jesus' disciples have an idea. Thomas has an idea as well. But Jesus has a better idea. The title of this message is A Better Idea. The main point is this. God's ideas are always better than our ideas. God's ideas are always better than our ideas. And we're going to see what that better idea that Jesus had was. What was that better idea? And then we're going to make two application points from the text. So let's read it. This is 1 through 16 of John chapter 11. 
Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble, because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles, because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. At the outset of this chapter, we're introduced to a man named Lazarus. Now, we're not given any information about Lazarus prior to chapter 11. It just says a certain man was ill. So the the rest of what we need to know about Lazarus is given to us in the next few verses. So this is kind of the the setting and players. This is going to be uh, Lazarus and his resurrection is going to run throughout the rest of this chapter. And so this is kind of like the introduction. It says he was from Bethany. That was a small town right outside of Jerusalem in Judea. He was the brother of Mary and Martha. Now, there were a lot of Marys in the first century. In fact, it's been calculated that in and around Jerusalem in the first century, 23% of all women were named Mary. It was a very common name. So John, the author, distinguishes this Mary from other Marys, like Mary, the mother of Jesus, or Mary Magdalene, by including this note about how she was the one who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with their hair. Now, we'll read about that later in chapter 12. It hasn't happened chronologically in the flow of John, but John knows it, and so he's including that detail. This is also the same Mary and Martha from Luke 10. You remember, that's when Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet, listening to his teaching, and Martha was busying herself serving and working and, and being upset that Mary wasn't serving and working. This is that same Mary and Martha And they're all siblings, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, all from Bethany. They're all brothers and sisters. And they seem to be part of Jesus' close disciples. If you recall, Jesus had an inner circle, the 12 disciples. And then he had an inner, inner circle of Peter, James, and John. He spent more time with them than the other disciples. So that was on the narrower, smaller circle side, but then from the disciples, the next circle up would be his close family and uh, and friends, and they would have been in that circle. They would have been in that circle of, of close people. They were more than just general followers of Jesus. They were his friends. Uh, later on, we're going to read that he loved them, they loved him. They, they were in that circle of, of close friends. 
And the sisters now have an idea. Lazarus is sick. It's not looking good. So their idea is this. Let's send a message and reach out to Jesus and ask him for help. And that's what we read in verse 3. Lord, he whom you love is ill. This is a request. This is Mary and Martha asking Jesus to come to Bethany to heal their brother. They knew Jesus healed people. He had been healing people all over the place during his, during his ministry. They knew he healed people. They knew he loved them. They knew he loved Lazarus. And so the idea was, we're just going to tell him he's sick, near, near death possibly, he's very ill, enough to send a message, and then Jesus is going to respond by coming and healing him. That was their idea. In verse, verse 4, here, here is Jesus' response. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Some people might be scratching their heads, say, okay, hold on a second. This illness does not lead to death, but we know Lazarus does die. What, how, does, how does that work? Jesus is saying this illness does not lead to death. And what he's saying is this illness is not a road that dead ends and stops at Lazarus being dead and remaining in the tomb. This road leads up to that and then passes through that and then leads to his resurrection and it leads to God being glorified. But it doesn't stop and remain at Lazarus's death. It passes through it. And if we follow the flow of John, if we remember where we're at, this is the last of the seven signs in the book of John. So this is, this is the biggest sign outside the resurrection, but in the first book of signs, this is the last one. This is number seven. This is a biggie. The resurrection of Lazarus. It is intended to publicly reveal the glory of God and to reveal the glory of God in Jesus Christ, to authenticate the person and ministry and work of Jesus as the Son of God, so that people will believe that he is the Son of God and by believing have life in his name. That's the purpose. That's where we're at in John. John 5 and 6, uh, 11, 5 and 6 tells us that Jesus loved all three of the siblings, Mary, Martha, Lazarus. So, or therefore, when Jesus received the message of Lazarus being sick, he purposefully did not leave, but stayed there for two more, de- two more days. Now, as the readers moving it, the, their way through this text, that, that doesn't seem to match up. He loved them, so he didn't go. That's the opposite of what we would expect to hear. We would expect something like, now Jesus loved Mary and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he immediately sent out for Bethany. That's what we're expecting. He loved them. He heard that he was sick, so, so he went and helped. But that's not what it says. It says he loved them, he heard he was sick, and so he didn't go. He stayed where he was for another two days. Mary and Martha had an idea. Jesus had a better idea. And here is Jesus' better idea. Jesus' better idea is to allow Lazarus to die, allow him to go into the tomb, allow him to remain there for four days, and then Jesus would show up and call him back to life and out of the tomb. That was Jesus' better idea. That's better than going and healing him. And that was the better idea. 
He loved them enough to say no to their request. He loved them enough so that in the end, they would be filled with more joy. They would be filled with more awe, more reverent respect for God. They would be filled with a stronger, greater faith, as would all the witnesses. That was the better idea. And that couldn't happen without them first passing through the sorrow and pain of having Lazarus die. God's ideas are always better than our ideas. Well, after this, the disciples also have an idea. It says after this in verses 7 and 8, meaning after waiting two more days, Jesus says, okay, now let's go. We've, we've waited an appropriate amount of time. Uh, I'm ready to go now. But the disciples are not so sure. If you look at their response, here's what they say. Here's their idea. Um, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? In other words, they're saying, really? Are you sure you want to go down to Judea? And are you sure you want to take us with you down to Judea? Because they're trying to kill you down there. And by extension, they might be trying to kill us too. Our idea is that you stay away from Jerusalem, stay away from Judea, and basically stay away from everybody who's trying to kill you and by extension might be trying to kill us. That's our idea. Let's just stay here. And then in verses 9 and 10, he could have given them a straightforward answer. right? Jesus could have said, you know what, I realize there are people down in Judea that are trying to kill me, but I'm going to go anyway. But he doesn't give them a straightforward answer. Instead, he gives them a physical illustration that captures the meaning of the spiritual situation. If we were to paraphrase that, that saying, he's basically saying, look, a traveler who goes on his journey is going to walk and he's not going to stumble because it's daytime. It's light out. He's going to be able to see where to put his feet and he's going to be able to, to walk without stumbling. However, someone who travels at night is going to stumble because it's dark out and he's not going to be able to see where his feet are and therefore he's going to have trouble and he's going to stumble and fall. That's what he's saying. And what he's telling them is this. I am walking in my incarnate ministry. I am currently walking in the daytime. The Father has given me a set ministry, a set course that I need to walk, and while I'm walking on that course, it's daytime. I can see I have no trouble, no worry about stumbling. As long as I am in the Father's will, doing what he sent me to do, there's no way that anyone can touch me. I can go down to Jerusalem, I can go down to wherever I want, nothing's going to happen to me. I'm not going to stumble because I'm walking in the daylight of the Father's will. Now, night is coming. We've seen that a couple times in the book of John. My hour is coming when I will be handed over to the Jewish leaders and they will lead me to the cross. But right now, it's daytime. So he's telling his disciples, I hear you. Your idea is that we stay away. I have a better idea. How about we go down there and we not worry about it at all? How about we go down there and we go down there in confidence? Because until my hour comes, nothing is going to happen to me. I can go wherever I need to go. I can do whatever I need to do. Verse 11 and 12, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And we see at this point some of the characteristic confusion that the disciples display. That's throughout John. It's throughout the Gospels. 
they don't always get what Jesus is trying to tell them. They think, and John includes that parenthetical note or that note of explanation about how they thought he was thinking physical sleep, but he was talking about death. So they think, oh, he's sleeping, good. He needs to rest up and, and get better. That's good. Let's just let him sleep. So Jesus has to turn around and address them plainly. And he says, no, Lazarus has died. I'm just going to lay it out for you. He's dead. And then he adds, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. Glad could also be translated as rejoice. I am, I am glad. I am rejoicing that I wasn't there so that you may believe. And we know from Thomas's response in the next verse that the disciples are, are down. They're, they're mournful. They're sorrowful. They're sad that, that Lazarus has, has died. They've just been informed about that. And I think they may be hearing the first part of what Jesus is saying, but not keying in on that second part of what Jesus is saying. They're hearing that first point part, and they're saying, really? You're glad? You're rejoicing that, that Lazarus is dead? Read the room, Jesus. This isn't a time to be rejoicing. Maybe, maybe it'd be a good idea for you to express some sorrow right now. I mean, he was your friend, right? And then they've glossed over the last part, so that you may believe. Once again, let's not forget what this book is about. The book of John, the overall purpose of the book of John, was written so that people will know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believe in him, and by believing, they will have life in his name. So Jesus is saying, I'm glad I wasn't there. I'm glad that Lazarus was allowed to die. I'm glad that Lazarus is going to be in the tomb four days, so that you may believe. Lord willing, we're going to get to the second chapter, uh, or second half of chapter John 11, and we're going to hit it pretty hard. Jesus is all about belief. This whole passage is about belief, believe, believe. It's just hammered on in chapter 11. That's his purpose. That's his big idea. That's his better idea. So that they would believe. So he rejoices that he was not there to heal Lazarus. Why? Jesus can see the whole picture. We have the advantage of being the reader and seeing this and, and knowing the end of the story. They didn't know that, but Jesus did. Jesus can see everything. They, they, it's like they're in a car and they have their entire windshield painted black. They can't see anything. They can't see down the road. They, don't, they can't see where this is headed. All they can do is look in their rearview mirror at what has happened. They know Lazarus has died. And they're down about that. They, they don't know what's coming. They don't know what's down the road, but Jesus does. They're down. They're mournful. And you can hear this kind of defeatist attitude in, in Thomas. Here's Thomas's idea. Last one. He says, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's, let's just go down there Admit defeat, and let's just roll over and die. I guess that's all we can do at this point. That is a defeatist attitude, if, if I've ever heard one. But Jesus has a better idea. Let's, let's summarize 1 through 16. Lazarus, 
a friend and disciple of Jesus, is presented to us in John's narrative as sick and dying. His two sisters, Mary and Martha, ask Jesus to come and help, but Jesus purposefully delays coming to them so that Lazarus dies. Jesus knows that he will raise Lazarus from the dead and that this miraculous sign will reveal God's glory, authenticate his identity as the Son of God, and powerfully strengthen the faith of his followers. His disciples, while believing Jesus with genuine faith, nevertheless display confusion, fear, and a defeatist attitude. That's, that's John 11, 1 through 16. Now I want to draw two application points for us this morning. Number one, the ability to recognize that God's ideas are always better than our ideas is not discerned naturally, but spiritually. That, that ability to see and recognize that, that God's ideas, God's purposes for us, for our life, for the world, are always better than our ideas, that's not something we naturally pick up on as, as image bearers, as people made in the image of God as humans. It's something that's spiritually discerned. People usually have no trouble picking out a better idea. People almost universally recognize a better idea when it comes along. They have no trouble discarding a, a bad idea or an okay idea or even a good idea if there's a better idea. In other words, no one has to have their arm twisted to, to recognize that um, indoor plumbing and uh, light bulbs and cars are better than outhouses and uh, candles and horses. Okay? Universal. However, when it comes to spiritual things, that universal ability to discern a better idea from an okay, bad, or, or good idea just goes out the window. When it comes to spiritual things, all of a sudden that, that ability to, to recognize the better idea is, is nowhere to be found. Until God does a work in our heart, no one is able to recognize a better spiritual idea. No one is able to recognize that God's ideas are better than our ideas. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like an unbeliever saying, well, right now I'm apart from Christ. I'm an unforgiven sinner. God's wrath reigns, remains upon me. And I am assured the certainty of hell the moment I die. And God's idea for me is to repent and believe in Jesus where I'm assured the forgiveness of my sins, where I'm assured eternal life with God. That's, that's what the Bible is. That's the message I'm hearing. Um, you know, I think I'm going to stay where I'm at. I, th I think I've got a better idea on how to live life than God. That, that's like saying, you know what? I'm going to stick with an outhouse. I, I see that, I see indoor plumbing, I, I hear you, but you know what, I just, I just don't think that's the way to go. I, I prefer an outhouse, especially in northern Illinois, in the middle of winter, when the wind's howling, and at night, and it's five degrees below, there's nothing like a, a comfortable, pleasant trip to the outhouse. <laughs> Let's just stick with that. Until God convicts someone of their sin, they will not be able to tell a spiritually good idea from a spiritually bad idea. We won't be able to see that God's ideas are always better than ours. Now, this is true about all things spiritual, and chief among all things spiritual is our salvation. If you're here today, 
and you have your own idea about how to live life. And that idea is anything other than faith in Jesus Christ, following Jesus Christ in discipleship, then you have not yet recognized that God's ideas are better than your own ideas. Consider Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poor in spirit means those who acknowledge and confess their sinfulness, those who acknowledge and confess their spiritual bankruptcy. To be poor in spirit is to acknowledge that you have nothing to offer to God. There's nothing that you can give Him or show Him or point to that will earn God's favor or acceptance towards you. Being poor in spirit is recognizing that you have no currency, no resources. You are utterly and completely, totally, spiritually destitute. And the only thing that you can do is fall on your knees before a holy God and beg him for mercy. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. And Jesus said, that person, those people, they're the ones that enter the kingdom of heaven. Those are the ones that are forgiven. Those are the ones that receive salvation. The poor in spirit. If you've been resisting God's call in your life, now's the time to become poor in spirit. Now's the time to acknowledge your sinfulness. Now's the time to recognize that God's idea for your life is better than your idea for your life. Now is the time to repent and believe in Jesus Christ. And there's one thing you need to know, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is grace-based. Grace means receiving something that we don't deserve. The gospel is grace-based. So God calls us out of his love for us And we respond to that call because he's done a work in our heart. We don't come to God on our own merit or because we think we're ready or because we've chosen God and and we expect him to, to welcome us because of who we are, what we've done or what we've not done. It's grace based. We don't deserve it. It's based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not ours. If we are truly poor in spirit, we've arrived at that point where we recognize It's not about us. It's all about Christ. Jesus was morally perfect. Jesus was perfectly righteous. And God demands that. It's grace-based. In other words, God does not allow someone into the kingdom of heaven who's okay. He does not allow someone into the kingdom of heaven who's pretty good. He doesn't allow people into heaven that are really good, almost this far away from being perfect. No. It's only those who are poor in spirit who recognize that they have nothing to offer and who trust in the righteousness of Christ alone. That's why we say faith alone and Christ alone. It's not anything we do. It's all about Christ. So if you're here this morning, I hope you hear Scripture. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
So that's the first takeaway. The ability to recognize that God's ideas are better than ours does not come naturally. It comes spiritually, and we have to be poor in spirit before we come to God. Number two, this passage is teaching us, and this is for the home folk, this is for believers. This passage is teaching us to rejoice with God's ideas even when they do not seem right to us. We are to rejoice in God's ideas even when they do not seem right to us. Jesus' idea did not seem right to Mary and Martha or the disciples. Not at all. They were being called upon to believe Jesus and to trust Jesus when things did not look right to them at all. Because we have to understand, at some point, Mary and Martha realized he's not coming. They sent word to him, and when the time elapsed that took for the message to get there and for him to travel back, and when they passed that, they realized he's not coming. He's saying no to this. And then the time elapsed, and then then Lazarus died. And they realized, not only did he not come, he didn't come in time, he didn't come at all. And Jesus' decision, when we asked him for help, was to tell us no. And they must have been thinking, at some point, entertaining all kinds of thoughts. Some of them may have very well have been does he love us or not? We reached out and he, and he wasn't there. That did not seem right to them at all. The disciples, really? You want to go down to Jerusalem? That doesn't make sense, Jesus, that you would want to give your enemies an opportunity to stone you. That doesn't seem right to us. And, and also, by extension, we're your disciples. We may get caught in that crossfire or get dragged into it. Really? That's what you want for us? You would expose us to that danger as well? I thought, I thought we were friends. Why aren't you listening to us? That does not seem right to us at all. But Jesus had a better idea. Your idea, Mary and Martha, was to heal Lazarus. I have a better idea. I'm going to raise him from the dead. I'm going to show up, and after four days of being cold and dead and lifeless in a tomb, I am going to call him out of the tomb. I'm going to call him back to life in front of a multitude of witnesses. I am going to demonstrate the power of God over life and death in front of your eyes. That's my better idea. You're afraid to travel down to Jerusalem? I have a better idea. Let's walk down there in confidence and boldness like we own the place. Let's walk down there in victory because we have the protection and the invincibility of the strong arm of God around us at all times. That's my better idea. You're, Thomas, you sound kind of defeatist in your attitude. You sound like it's all over. I have a better idea. I'm going down to conquer When I go down to Jerusalem, I am going to achieve victory over sin and death and the enemy, Satan himself. I'm going down there and everyone who follows me is going to share in my triumph. This is not a defeat. I am going to go down there and achieve the greatest victory in the history of the universe. That's my better idea. God's ideas are always better than our ideas even when they don't seem right to us. Here's the thing. Jesus does not show us 
all the cards in his hand. He keeps many of those back to himself. He doesn't, he doesn't reveal everything to us up front. He didn't reveal it to them, and he doesn't reveal it to us. Instead, he asks us to trust him and to believe in him and to trust that his ideas are better than our ideas, even when they don't seem right. This is one of the hallmarks of a spiritually mature believer. Trusting God, trusting in his plans for our life, even when it seems like we could come up with a much better idea. Trusting God, and not just trusting, rejoicing in God's idea, rejoicing in God's plans for our life. When we're fearful of what's happening, when we're confused about why God would allow something to happen to us, when we reach a point of feeling defeated and just want to throw in the towel and quit. And I don't know if you've reached this point at all in your life, but if you haven't, you probably will. It's this feeling of having taken so many hits to the face that, that you don't even bother to defend yourself anymore. You, you don't even raise your gloves to protect your face. You just, okay, I'm done. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen, and I'm, I'm ready to just end it. When our life doesn't turn out the way we thought it would, God, I thought I'd be here at this point in life, or, or I think this would be turn out like this, and I'm, I'm not seeing that. Or you've called out to God and asked for help and he doesn't answer. Or, or how about this one? You call out to God and ask for help and it gets worse. Things deteriorate. We need to understand what God is doing in those moments or in those seasons of our life. When things do not seem right to us, he is teaching us to trust him. He is making our faith stronger. You probably remember the TV show Extreme Home Makeover. It's been off air for a while, but it's pretty popular at the time. It's pretty simple. They, they had this team, Ty Pennington and his crew would descend on a community and they would send a, a, a deserving family off for a vacation and then for the next week they would rebuild a home and then they would bring the family back and they would have this reveal moment and they would have the family stand behind this, this big bus and then they would say, move that bus, and the bus would move, and that was the reveal. That was the moment where everything they had done was shown to the, the family. And that's really what the whole show was about. The whole show was about making an impact on deserving families. They had all kinds of applications, and they would only select you know, a, a, a very few amount of families. And their whole idea was to, to the show was to show that impact, show the difference they made. In that moment, that reveal moment, that's where they could visibly show what they were working towards. And I had watched part of the show not too long ago, and we, we paused it, and we left, and we had to take care of something. When we came back, we realized that I saw the TV, and it had frozen on that moment. It had frozen on the reveal. And they had a close-up of the face of one of the family members seconds after the bus had moved. 
And the person was standing there, just freeze-framed, and their, their, their head was up, their, their eyes were tightly shut, there were tears streaming down their face, their hands were up near their heads, their mouth was open, and it was just a, a, a picture of raw, unfiltered emotion. And it captured that, that reveal moment, it captured the impact moment. Do you think that that impact would have been as strong if the family members were not sent away on vacation, but were allowed to do a walkthrough and oversee every part of the build? If they were allowed to, to see the old house come down, if they were allowed to see the foundation and the framing go up, if they were allowed to see the landscape put in, if they were allowed to see the, the finish details and how they customized and personalized each room, the answer is no. After all that, if they had allowed them to, to take part and witness all that stuff, and then they said, okay, now we're going to have you go behind the bus and we're going to reveal it. Well, the reveal's been made. They're, they're, that work, that impact moment, wouldn't have been there. It's the same thing with Christ in our life. If Jesus showed us all the cards, if Jesus showed us every reason and every rationale for everything that happens in our life, for, for the behind-the-scenes reasons why he allows us to go through things, then that work of increased faith, of belief, of trust, of the glory of God, that wouldn't be there. That wouldn't be there. Because all along we'd be informed, okay, I know why this is happening. I don't need to step out in faith. I don't need to trust because I already know. If you are a believer and you want to become a mature believer, then you will learn the secret of rejoicing for God's idea for your life even when it does not seem right. So not Thomas. Let's be clear. Thomas is presented here as a negative example in this passage. We don't want Thomas. We don't want to, to approach this with, okay, I'll go along with it. I recognize that I can't do anything about it anyway, so fine, God, I guess this is my lot in life and I'm, I'm going to accept it. That's not what we're looking for. We're not looking for a, I'll go along with you, God, but I'm going to keep the defeatist mentality. No, it's not it. It would look like Something along this, something along these lines. Here's, here's a sample prayer. This thing that's happening to me right now, or this situation I'm in the middle of, or this, this, the way that my life looks, the future, the way it looks from this vantage point, I don't like it, but I'm going to trust you. I'm going to believe that your idea for my life is always better than my idea. And I don't want these to be just words. Lord, or a reluctant resignation to something that's out of my control anyway. No, give me the grace and the strength to lean into the, this, to lean onto you, to trust you with my head and my heart, to help me be as faithfully as possibly I can, and to keep trusting you, and to keep praising you, and to keep honoring you in everything I do. Thank you for loving me and saving me and for always working out the things of my life for your glory and for my good. I love you, Lord, and I know you love me, and I rejoice 
in what you are doing in me and in my life at this moment. That, that prayer is the difference between a believer, one of the differences, and a spiritually mature believer. Not just accepting our circumstances or surrendering to things we cannot change. No, it's rejoicing in the knowledge and the truth that God's ideas are always better than our ideas. Amen. Heavenly Father, I, I don't know where everyone's at this morning, but you do. And I know at any given time in, in, a, in a group this size, there's probably something that's going on that, is, that does not seem right, that's painful, that's a stressor. And the temptation is there to, to be fearful or confused or to have a defeatist mentality. So Father, I ask that for everyone here this morning, we turn to you in faith and rejoice in the knowledge that you are God and that whatever you're doing in our life, it is always, always for your glory and for our ultimate spiritual good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.